Welcome in to the At The Yard Podcast. Today's guest is LMU recruiting coordinator Tony Asaro, who will break down the success he enjoyed as a player and now as a coach. We'll take a deep dive into recruiting and all things Lions baseball. All that and much more on episode 49 of the At The Yard Podcast. Welcome back to the At The Yard Podcast. Really pumped about today's guest, LMU recruiting coordinator Tony Asaro joins me. Tony, thanks a bunch for being on the podcast, man. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to being here. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, obviously a pretty hectic time, pretty different time for us. I mean, I got to imagine this is the first time you're not on a ball field in the spring since Lord knows how long, but you know, how are you holding up? What are you doing to keep yourself busy? You know, we're doing all right. It's, it's obviously not ideal. I think everybody has had to restructure how they're looking at things and what they're up to, what they're doing, but we're doing okay. I, I can tell you that being a dad of a three-year-old and we have a little boy on the way in the end of June, it's, it's been a fun challenge to balance, you know, that, that father and coach relationship. And it's been good. Been able to stay busy on the phone. It's amazing what a phone or a computer can do and, and how you can stay tied into some things and, and get creative on that side of things. But being able to eat three meals a day with my family at home is something that not many guys in, in my position get to do. And so that part has been a good thing. Yeah, that that's awesome. So, Tony, you're you're a native of the South Bay, there, the West Torrance High alum. You're a four-year starter there, man. And and just doing some research for for this podcast, the one thing that strikes me is it seems like everywhere you've been, you've experienced success. I mean, three league titles there at West Torrance uh, before heading off to college. What what's I mean, there's I mean, there's no secret to it, right? I mean, obviously hard work and being good teams, but I mean, what's that experience been like as a player, you know, having that experience of success, how has that helped you help prepare you for coaching? Would you say? Oh, tremendously. You know, I I think that I got so lucky as a player from a really young age, even prior to high school, I, I played for a man named Bob Gonzalez at a Holyfield park in Norwalk, California, uh, for the Norwalk Stingrays my whole life. And we were very fortunate to win and be around guys a lot tougher than me from a young age. And, and that helped me grow up. And when I went to high school, it was the same thing. A guy named Harry Jenkins was my high school coach. Who He was, gosh, he'd coached, I think he won thousand, over a thousand high school games or something like that. He had won. And so, and he cared about winning and didn't care about much else. I mean, you're, you, it didn't matter what you did or how you did it. It was about winning and at all, all cost. Um, and so that was at a young age, I got really lucky and introduced to winning and the importance and what that felt like to be on a team and be a part of that. And that was something that now it absolutely stuck with me. And in our recruiting philosophy here, we're, we're looking for guys that are winners and that want to win and that, and that it's a huge part of, of what they do. And so after high school, you go to Pepperdine for a year, you guys win the WCC and then you transfer to Irvine. You you go to you go to Omaha in 07, the Supers in 08, and then you guys won a Big West title in 09. So it's like, I mean, that winning just kind of carried on with you. But talk to us a little bit about your college experience and you know the decision to transfer um, from Pepperdine to Irvine, and and then what you know playing for Skip at Irvine, you know, meant to you. Yeah, I had a I had a fun 
a really fun, I mean, again, it's all about the people. And I think you're going to hear me say that a few times as we have this conversation is that I've been very lucky to be around some tremendous people that helped me grow up as a man through this process. And my teammates were awesome. By no means was I, you know, a huge part of what I was doing in terms of being on the field most of the time until I was older in my college career. And, uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So we didn't really know what we were doing in this recruiting process. We had no idea. You know, the only guy that I really knew in division one baseball, that was a prospect ahead of me was a guy named Nelson Caraballo, who was the catcher at West high before I got there. And so he was kind of my idol and had worked with me and pushed me. And I ended up going to Pepperdine and I had a chance to be the catcher for one of my best childhood friends and teammates growing up, Bryce Stoll, who's actually the ops guy over at Irvine now. Um, and so we, I went to Pepperdine um, more off of gut feel. And again, winning was a big thing and a big part of it. I, a lot of kids grew up watching Major League Baseball and, and wanting to do that. I wanted to go to the College World Series. That was actually something for me in my household that I just thought was the best thing. And so while Major League Baseball you know, became a little bit more of a realistic thing as I got better and, and grew up, when I chose Pepperdine, they were a top 25 school. And so I, I got lucky to be introduced to some great teammates out of the gates. And, you know, gosh, we had we had multiple big leaguers on that field at one time. Barry Enright was our Friday guy. And Danny Wirth was our shortstop. And Chase Darneau was our third baseman as a freshman. I mean, I, by no means did I have a part in the baseball side, but some unbelievable teammates. And Coach Rod was the head coach at that time. And Hurt was the assistant who, who out of the gates taught me some really neat things about baseball as a freshman. And the decision to transfer was more of a, a fit for me from a – a young guy that, you know, I, I don't think I did enough research in terms of what it was like to be at a school that was as small as Pepperdine was. Uh, it was a challenge for me academically. I was studying my butt off and getting my tail kicked in class. And for me, I needed a change of scenery. I was, I was not doing great on the baseball field. I was struggling with some things off the field and it was time for me to have a change of scenery. And when I got my release after that freshman year, the first place that I sent it over to was UC Irvine. It was the only place that I asked to go. I, I had loved the staff at a high school, um, and so I sent it there. Coach Serrano said, we'd love to have you. And, and that was kind of on we went to that next chapter of things. Yeah. So then, uh, excuse me, I said Skip earlier, but obviously Coach Serrano there at the time. And, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Both of them. Both yeah, of them. Yeah. And, and you know, you your ties with Coach Serrano run real deep, and we'll get into that here in, in a little bit. But uh, take us through that experience of reaching Omaha, right? I mean, because obviously every kid that goes to play college baseball that's the dream, right? And on the West Coast, for whatever reason, it seems like teams kind of get shafted, right? You get about six, eight teams into the regional from the West Coast, and they all have to play each other. And, and you know, eventually maybe one or two teams from the West Coast has a shot to play in Omaha. But take us through that experience and, and, and you know, what that was like for you. Yeah. I mean, gosh, it started with the people. We was our coaching staff was Serrano was the head coach. Berge was the assistant. Um, coach Brown was the other assistant. Coach Choate was our volunteer and Greg Wallace was our ops guy that first wow. year that I was there. Um, and the year before bomber had been on staff. And so there had been some great coaches. And I think you saw that Fullerton type of baseball go in there where coach, you know, we were coached difficult. We were coached hard. There was high expectations and a lot demanded of us on a daily basis. And we were pushed. And that became the expectation. It was not okay to not do the little things well and to not attack the day and, and get after each other and, and get after the game. And there was a very high level of 
competition daily. And I, I think as season went on and the way that we were prepared between conditioning and the weight room and everything we were going through, by the time it was ready to play somebody else, it was, it was game on. And so you know, we experienced a little bit of, of an interesting path where, you know, the team had made the, the regionals, I think for a year or two before that, when coach Savage had left and then coach Toronto came in there, they hopped in a regional and then, um, the team had never, never gone on that. I hadn't won a postseason game, I believe until 2007. And so we ended up kind of making our way through the big West. I believe that year, UC Riverside ended up winning the big West. Um, we ended up losing the final weekend to them. We, we beat them two out of three. We needed to sweep them in order to win it. So we went in as a two seed that year. Fullerton actually went in as like the four or five seed. Um, as we went into the playoffs, and the only reason I bring that up, we ended up playing them in an elimination game in Omaha. And so the Big West at the time was very good, and they were taking a lot of teams from the conference. We, we got called to go into the Texas Regional um, out, at, out at Round Rock. I think it was us, Brown, Wake Forest, and Texas off the top of my head. Uh, we went out there. We could we could really pitch. We could really play defense. I think one of the things that gets undersold is how balanced and complete our offense was. You know, everybody talked about small ball and, and all those kind of things. But you look at the doubles. You look at the home runs. We had over 100 doubles as a team, like 40 home runs as a team, which in, at Irvine, at that ballpark, that you yeah. could hit a little bit. You know, and so – it was an interesting – I think we stole 100 bases. I just here, I pulled it up while I'm talking. 140 bases we stole that year wow. as a team. And so we were very balanced offensively, and the, the fact that we could pitch and play defense the way we could, we were, we were tough to beat. We were, we were a very good team, and we ended up rolling into Super Regionals at Wichita State and going out there, and I think we gave up one run in two days and swept our way into Omaha. It was like a blur. You know, we got, we got there, and we just said, oh, my gosh – you know, and so, and we were so fortunate, the, the pitching staff we had, and, you know, it was, it was about the team. It was about the teammates and we didn't know how special we really were until, you know, we just, we just kind of started working at it in the fall and being pushed by our coaches. And we, when they said go, we said how hard and how fast and how long, you know, we didn't say why, or, you know, what are you asking about? We just, we did it and we did it the best we could. And, you know, I think that was where it started. There was a ton of trust between the staff and the players. Man, what a staff you just laid out, man. I mean, holy smokes. That's just, that's, I mean, you got a couple of head coaches there and, you know, I think Wally eventually will be a head coach. And I mean, holy smokes, what a staff you just mentioned there. But oh yeah. To, yeah. so after the 08 season, you get drafted by the Cardinals, decide to come back. Uh, but in between that, you played in the Alaska League. And I got to ask you, did you have an opportunity to play in that midnight game up there? I think so. I, I can't remember, to be honest. I think we did. I know we played one like doubleheader with the Bucks, with the fireworks going off and all that kind of stuff. Um, we, we went down to Fairbanks. Play. I don't think we played in the actual midnight game, though, when we were down there. I wish I could remember more of it. I can tell you this. It was my favorite summer by far of, of college summer ball. Uh, Bob Miller was our head coach that year. Uh, Rusty McNamara was our assistant. And so we had a couple of great coaches there and, and a great team full of guys that James Paxton was on our summer team that summer. Um, and so it was kind of fun to see the level of talent in the league across the board. Um, but it was, it was an awesome experience. I, I have zero, zero negative things to say about that organization, the Glacier Pilots and and the place in general. That, that's awesome. So let, let's backtrack a little bit because I found a note on you that I found fascinating and I got to ask you about it. You played in the world baseball challenge for team Samoa. How did that come about? Yeah. So, Funny story. They had to forge my birth certificate. I was like Tony Tolia Asaro. I was 14 years old. I was a bullpen catcher. It was not a whole lot more than that, but 
throughout the summer, a guy named Murphy Sua. Uh, Murphy was a head coach at Dominga Hills for a long time. Uh, he's now, I think, at West L.A. College. He's been in baseball for a lot of years and a tremendous, better, way better person than, than he is a baseball coach, and he's a good baseball coach. And so Murphy, for a lot of years, was great to me. He needed a, a guy to basically help out catching pens and, and helping him out with that stuff while he was getting the team together and while they were practicing and playing uh, in L.A. to get prepared for the team. And so I got a chance to play against college guys and, and some semi-pro guys you know, during that time, and then they asked if I'd go up there. And lucky enough, my, my, my father was – just crazy enough to allow me to go do that. I ended up getting that bat. I think I flew out to right field, if I remember. But majority of the time I was down there catching pens. I, I've loved every minute of it. We had to put on the lava lavas and dance and do all that kind of <laughs> stuff in front of the crowd. It was so out of my my realm in terms of comfortable you know, situations. But it was an awesome experience. <laughs> that's, that's that's outstanding. The fact that you're you know, to modify the uh, birth certificate there is pretty sweet. So, you you finished playing you finished playing in Irvine and, and you hop right into coaching, man. At, at El Camino, there um, you're the recruiting coordinator, uh, and you guys reach the Final Four, a pair of Super Regionals in your first stint there at, at El Camino. Talk to us a little bit about recruiting to junior college and. And, you know, why that should be a really viable option for players, you know, right, wrong or indifferent. You, you know, everybody wants to, oh, I'm going to D1 or I'm going to a power five or I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But there is particularly in California, the level of baseball at a JC, even at the D2 level and heck, even at some of the D3 schools in the state is really, really good. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, your experience there, your first go around at El Camino, uh, obviously, you know, success followed you there um, and and just kind of recruiting to a JC and why, in your opinion, you know, more guys should should really be open to that. Yeah, absolutely. And and before I go into it, I got I have to give a shout out to to Skip and that staff for playing for them because that was a whole other it was an unbelievable change there and I I only bring it up because it leads me into the coaching and the junior college stuff when when coach Gillespie took over, we had so much success on the on the back end of those 4 years too. When I finished playing, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had finished my degree, I was sitting there, I I was all fired up. I didn't get drafted. I was going, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I want to do. Maybe I'll take EMT classes over at El Camino. They had a great fire program. So I hopped in that. I didn't have a job. I was up at the river with my buddies having a good time. And Nate Fernley called me, the head coach at El Camino. He's still over there now. He runs a tremendous program. And he said, hey, I've, I've got a job. It pays $2,000. But I need a guy to coach the catchers, to coach the outfielders, and to coach first base. And I would, I'd love to know if you're interested. I said, Sure. I don't have a job. So I'm in, you know, I didn't know what else I want to do. I had, I had actually called coach Serrano who was at Fullerton at the time and said, Hey, I, I'm thinking I may want to do this. I love the guys. I love the people. I love, you know, being on the field. I will come for free. Like, can I just come hang out and learn? And they're like, Hey, we don't have a spot for you. But he, the best thing he ever said to me was if you want to coach, if you think you want to coach, you either need to go coach high school or you need to coach junior college baseball. And that'll let you know if this is what you want to do. And I don't think there's been any more truth spoken to me in, in anything else. I mean, that was about as true of a statement because I got that job at El Camino and it was mowing the grass in the morning. It was practice in the afternoon. It was recruiting after practice. And then you do it all over again day after day after day. And then once I got my master's degree, it became 
you know, teach classes, mow the grass, practice, <laughs> recruit, <laughs> teach some more classes. But it was it was an unbelievable. And so and you're making zero, you know, hardly any money at the time, especially at the beginning of it. And so the recruiting piece to, to really answer your question, like I should have without rambling the first nah. time was I thought the recruiting piece with there was unbelievable. And here's why, especially in California, nobody has scholarship. So it's an even playing surface across the board. You know, so right away, and I didn't know this at the time, I was just like, oh, I'm going to go watch as many baseball games as I can, because that's what recruiting is. And I have to learn how to evaluate and how to build a roster and how to build a team. And and so you just you pay attention to the people that you're around and you pay attention to your boss and you pay attention to your team that you have on campus. And a lot of times they'll tell you what you need. You know, I got really lucky, Nate Fernley to recruit there. He didn't want a roster of 55, 60 people in the fall, which some JCs will do. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just their style. He's like, Hey, I don't want more than 30 guys. That's kind of my only restriction. And he, he took it, he took his hands off. You know, he gave me the opportunity to mess things up. And that was really, really cool of him to do. And I think a lot of young guys now, you know, they look at it and they see it, you know, social media blows things up. Now there's a lot of different things. You know, even even sometimes guys get so caught up in the rankings and all that kind of stuff that it's difficult for them to see past the fact that, hey, that's awesome that somebody, you know, like PBR thinks that I'm a great player and they've evaluated me that way. But do I need more time to develop? Am I physically where I need to be? Am I academically where I need to be? And in junior college, usually they're there for a reason. You know, it's very rare that guys go through the cracks nowadays. And I think people are getting too caught up in where you're going and why you're going there. And they've got to look at some facts and just say, like, hey, you know what? I can go to a junior college and get ahead of my academics. It costs my family less money. I can physically develop. I can play for a longer time. And as a coach, I, I never played junior college baseball. So I had no idea when I first got in you know, how much development actually takes place there. Like, you don't have all the restrictions that Division One baseball has. You don't have all these people telling you you can only do so much and you can only, you know, practice this amount. It's like, Hey, as long as you're in class, you can practice. As long as that field's open, you can get in there and get better at things and, and work on some things. And so I learned at a young age, how much better guys can get and how much they can develop. And you know, I think there's pros and cons to everything. Some guys go to junior college and they probably could have gone to a division one right away. And I think what really gets lost is if you take care of your academics, sometimes that's only a one year stop for you, as long as you're a qualifier coming out of high school. And so yeah, I, I hope that answers some of it. Yeah, no, it totally does. And I, I love that last point you said there, right? Like people think that, oh, I got to go to a JC. Oh, I'm going to be stuck there for two years. Well, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, if you took care of business in high school, you can go there. And in one year, the, the progress you can make physically, mentally, from a maturity standpoint, you know, and then obviously on the baseball field is, is really significant, right? And that could lead to that D1 opportunity. And we see it all the time in recruiting. Oh, 100%. 100%. If you take care of the academics and you're an NCAA qualifier, you meet the benchmark requirements, you can leave after a year. You know, if you don't, you got to get your A. That's a whole different kind of ball of wax that guys go down and, and run into the issue. But guys, there's some guys that, and, and every player really needs the at-bats. You know, it's you see some guys go to a four-year school and it happens to us. We don't do it on purpose. We're recruiting guys to play and to make an impact right away. And there's times that they're just not quite ready and it ends up taking a year or two to develop or you go to a junior college, you get a couple hundred at-bats you may be ready. You know, I think every player is at a different point in their career. And that's the one thing guys have to understand is it's so unhealthy to compare yourself to what somebody down the street is doing or at your rival school or from your travel ball team. When the only thing that matters is how you're developing, how you feel, what's going on in your life. How's your closet? Is it clean? Are you taking care of stuff? And I think if you're focused on the right things, you're going to make the right decision 
and on the backside of this thing. Fantastic point there, Tony, on that last one. Just, you know, keep your keep your eye, mind right, right? Like you don't need to worry about what other guys are doing. And that's a fantastic mm-hmm. point. I love it. So after El Camino, your first stint there, you, you head out to Tennessee and Coach Serrano, uh, you know, got the job there and, and you head out there for, for what, three seasons there and, and as the volunteer. And now you're a guy from SoCal. You played high school ball in SoCal. You played your college ball in SoCal. Yes, you traveled a little bit with baseball uh, out of the area, but I mean, you're talking, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different ball of wax, right? I mean, what, <laughs> what, what, talk, talk to us a little bit about yeah. you know, the, the experience in Knoxville. Culture shock, baby. It was yeah, beautiful. Totally. No, I had, you know, after a couple years in junior college, we were having some success. We had, we had made a run in the playoffs a couple times and I, I had kind of come to the realization, like I, I wanted the challenge of division one baseball. I, I wanted that challenge. I wanted to know if I could or couldn't do it. I wanted to fail at it before I could, you know, say that I couldn't do it. And so, you know, I honestly at the time was kind of just doing my job and doing it well. And I would, I would stay in touch with coaches because they'd call and they'd be recruiting our players and asking about guys. Tennessee at the time was recruiting a guy named Alex Misseloff to go out there uh, that we had pitching for us. And Coach Serrano called. I was never forget. I was finished teaching a swimming class. I will never forget this. I finished teaching a swimming class, and he called and said, "Hey." You know, I may have a, job, a volunteer job open up. You know, would you be interested? I, I don't can't guarantee it right now. And I said, Coach, I'm there. Like, if you give me a chance, I'm there. Just tell me when. And he ended up calling me back. I was actually at a buddy's bachelor party in Las Vegas. I will never forget <laughs> getting the phone call. And I stepped out into the hallway of the hotel room. I wanted to scream. I was like, I'm in. I'm in, baby. Let's do it. And so, you know, I got a chance that year to go out there with Coach Bergeron and Bill Moziello and Greg Wallace and. And Coach Serrano, he gave me the opportunity to, to really get my, my foot in the door and experience what SEC baseball was like. And, you know, there's a bunch of things you wish you could do different and wish, wish you could change. But the reality of it was, that, you know, we did some great things there for those years. And, gosh, it was an unbelievable learning opportunity to be challenged there. So as a volunteer, what's your role, right? I mean, because everybody knows about the the two paid assistant coaches and, you know, obviously the head coach. But, you know, a lot of people don't aren't familiar with, you know, there's a volunteer coach. There's a director of ops. Uh, in some cases, there's a you know director of analytics. But what as a volunteer under Coach Serrano, what, what were some of your responsibilities or just kind of you can even generalize it as it pertains to, you know, a number of different programs? You know, what does the volunteer do? Yeah, you know, I think it's different in every program and what they're asking you to do. I can only speak from my experiences. And again, I think it's you have to be as versatile as you could possibly be in that role. You know, if you're if you're trying to get into it to make money, bad decision, bad life choice. Don't do this. Don't take that job. You know, if you're doing it to try to, like, advance your career, I think it's a it's the bad. That's the wrong mindset. You know, I think you have to go into that role saying, how do I make this team and organization better? What can I do? How do I prepare myself to be as sharp as possible? And how can I get ready to learn and to help where there's holes? And so when I got there, I was I was in charge of the outfielders. I coached first I threw a lot of batting practice and then I helped wherever it was needed. And so my role kind of shifted year to year. There is I think, second year I was a volunteer there. I moved into helping out a little bit more down in the bullpen. I shifted into the catchers when Coach Mo moved over to TCU, where he's at now. And so I got to go back to coaching catchers, which is kind of my true passion on the defensive side of the ball. And so you kind of just 
shifted and moved. My third year, I moved into the director of operations role, which I had zero passion to do and was not excited about it. And I look back now and it was an unbelievable role with a great chance to learn a part of the game and a part of the, the program that I didn't really know a lot about. And now I can walk around and I can say, I understand how to balance a budget and I understand how to do travel and food and meals and, and all the other things that go along with that. And so I think for me, that volunteer role was kind of a chance to learn as much as I could from people that knew way more about baseball than I did and help where I could to help grow the guys. And then for me, from the recruiting side, you know, that took a little bit to look at. And I, I think where I ended up doing a really good job of was, you know, not trying to reinvent the wheel, but instead of saying like, hey, there's a need for phone calls and there's a need to network and there's a need to grow and nurture relationships with people. And so I got on my phone and I just hammered travel coaches and high school coaches and people like yourself until I got to know them. I said, hey, you know, the more people we know and the better that we do with that, maybe I can help our program a little bit by being some, being the personality on the phone. And so I, I knew a lot of people just by picking up my phone and, and doing that. You know, I, I had so much to learn on the baseball side, and I figured I could control being able to call the people that I could. You know, I couldn't speak to players, but I could speak to their coaches and find out where they were playing and when they were throwing and what tournament it is and where should we go. And, and I became an asset for Coach Mo and Coach Berge and Coach Serrano when they were out on the road. And I think that was a huge thing that, that helped kind of lay a good foundation for where I was headed. Yeah, and and certainly you got some more experience that down, more experience doing that down the, down the line. But you come back to El Camino, uh, El Camino College for a year there in 2016 as a recruiting coordinator, and then the opportunity comes up at Utah. How did that come about? And uh, you know what was your role there? Yeah, so I had gotten engaged to my wife, who had who you know we're married now. We've got a, a second a boy on the way here coming up in June, and. We wanted to get back to the West Coast if we could. Our family was there. I was born and raised here. It was an opportunity to stay closer to the home. You know, and I had a chance to sit down with Coach Gill and, and interview for the Loyola Marymount job. And for me, that was a huge job because I had grown up in the area. And so it was something that, that we rolled the dice on and went for. And I ended up interviewing for it a couple of times and didn't get. End of August came around and I didn't have a job. And so I actually ended up in at Cypress College with Pick for a semester, and then they didn't accept my master's. A long story there, and that's how I ended up at El Camino. And then the end of the spring happened, and Coach Fern kind of looked at me and he said, "Hey, man, you, you need to you need to stay in this Division One baseball thing. You're, you're not meant for for junior college ball at this point in your life and in this phase of your career. You need to get prepared for that." I said, "I'm not going anywhere, man. I'm happy. This has been a grind. Those three years were great. I learned a lot. You know, I, I might think about doing this. I have my master's and." And so he goes, nope, I already hired a guy that's going to come in and, and boot you out. So you better figure out how to get a job because that's what you're going to go do. And I said, what the heck? And so I, I talked to Coach Serrano a little bit more um, about, you know, the possibility of even going back there. That wasn't the right thing in the time of life that I was in. And I got lucky enough that, that Coach Kinneberg called and offered me a job at the University of Utah. I sat down with Coach Craw and, and Coach K and got to go up there and work with Bross and Crawford and Coach K for a year. I think the year that uh, Coach Hawkins left for San Jose State. Yeah, that, that's awesome. But then the big break, if you will, comes and and you know you spent a couple of years at Northridge, um, you know, and and I think that's really at least from just kind of following your path and and you know knowing you a little bit that I do. But uh, you know, I think that's really when 
you kind of took that next step, right? Because now you're you're able to recruit to Division One, and you guys had a lot of success bringing in quality players there. Uh, you know, then ultimately you you move over to LMU uh, where you're at now. But you, you all of it seems to come back to recruiting, right? And every every program is based on the ability to recruit players for that fit their program, that fit their style. So. You know, what sort of things you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, you want to recruit the winning type of player. But I mean, that's pretty that's a pretty broad, you know, pretty broad statement. But what sort of what sort of characteristics are you looking for in recruits? Obviously, at LMU, you're looking for the academic piece to be shored up. But um, tell us a little bit about the important characteristics that you look for uh, when you're out recruiting guys. Or even when you're just out, you know, evaluating guys before you determine, hey, I want to recruit this guy or not. Oh, yeah, I, I would love to. I love talking about it. I think it's different everywhere you go. You know, the Northridge player is not always the LMU player. Some cases they are. But but there's some types of, of young men that fit other places well. And here the academic piece does separate that. You know, a lot of guys in Northridge, we couldn't get into school here that could go there and, and be able to succeed and see them do really well. And so you're dealing with different fit, different style of baseball, different coaching staffs. You know, all those things play into who you're going to recruit and why and the style of baseball that you want to play. So I think the first thing for me that stands out is are they a good baseball player? You know, it's you have to watch the game and you have to say, like, does he have the physical attributes and ability to play Division One baseball in my mind and make an impact in our program, not just be good at it, right? There's tons of players that are great players, but some guys just aren't great in terms of the style of player that you're looking for and that you want to do. And so for us, it's can you play baseball at, at an elite level in order to physically be ready to do that? And once you've determined that a guy physically is a good enough player to be there and, and be good enough that for us that we would say, Hey, that guy can help us right away. Now it comes down to finding out more about that guy as a young man. How does he treat his teammates? What's he like on the field? How does he handle his emotions? Is he poised? You know, is he able to be coachable? Can you coach him? How does he go about the little things? How's he getting on and off the field? How's he wearing his uniform? And how's he showing up to the yard? You try to pay attention to as many small things as you can. And, and that's what I mean by a winning player is, Hey, is this guy a guy who carries himself the right way? You know, what's his attitude? How does he speak when I talk to him on the phone? And what is he like? And how does he carry himself? And what does he like to his teammates? What's his, what's his reputation from the high school coach, from the travel coach, from some other coach that might have played against him, from some person that I may know that may know them? You know, you want to try to find out as many things as you possibly can uh, about a guy. And so I hope that that helps with answering the question on where to start. For me, it starts with being able to be a good baseball player. Are you good enough? You know, I, I think that's where you determine the starting place, and then you work your way down. What is important to you, and and what matters? We say at LMU, you got to have an imagination, and you got to have a chip on your shoulder. So when we talk to guys, we talk. We are we are very clear that hey, we're trying to go to Omaha. We're trying to do that. You know, we're we're not afraid to say that. And has it happened? No. Is it something that we aspire to do? Because if we set that bar high, now when we look at our daily decisions and the actions we're taking, are they lining up with us trying to get to that place and trying to get to that end goal? And the chip on your shoulders doesn't mean you, you listen to Michael Jordan in the last dance. That guy could create a chip on his shoulder. I got coach didn't say hi to me in the restaurant the other day. Like, I'm going to show him why I'm going to pound him. You know, it's like same thing with us is, hey, are you are you doing things to improve yourself constantly? Are you trying to prove yourself that you're better than you are you're trying to prove to somebody that may have doubted you or some you know do you have that edge to you that allows you to constantly improve 
You know, those are kind of just two simple things that we say. Like, if we're talking to guys, hey, you got to have an imagine. You got to think you're better than you maybe even are to play here. Right? You got to think that you can go play professional baseball if you want to come play here because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to develop you to become a better person than maybe even you think you could be. And so those are that's kind of what we look for. Yeah, a couple of things that you, you mentioned there that really stood out to me is is you, know, you mentioned how, how does he show up to the yard? And, you know, I've been to games where I've seen you, you know, it's an hour, 15 minutes before the game. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that you can learn about a player and or players just by watching their interactions with with teammates, coaches, you know, how they warm up and, and all the all of these things, how they go through in and out. You know, how much stock do you put into that? And, and you know, is that something that could, uh, you know, ultimately cost a, cost a player an opportunity if it's something that is kind of off-putting? Yeah, you know, I think it it does have a part and it plays. You know, I think the key thing is to, to keep in mind the context of what I'm looking at. There are times that you're out in Arizona for 10 straight days and a guy's coming off a doubleheader yesterday and he caught all 14 innings and he might look like he's dragging a little bit, walking up to the field with his uniform still dirty and crusty. And you know, I think it's more just key to, to see, you know, is he interacting with his teammates and how's he carrying himself? I like to, some days I like to sit right in the middle of parents and listen to them and try to figure out, you know, what they're yapping about and what they're saying. There's other days I like to go down the line and stand by the dugout and hear the players just kind of interact with each other and, and see how they're speaking and what kind of language they're using. And I think it plays a role. You're trying to recruit people. And you know, Coach Choate says as well, he's like, hey, if we're going to recruit guys that, that I'm going to spend more time with in my family for the next four years, I want to like these guys. You know, yeah. and that's a pretty yeah. basic way to say it. But you, it's your our job. It's all about relationships. How well can I develop a relationship with a guy? Because the better relationship I develop with a guy, the more we can get out of them as players, the more that we can get from them as people. You know, it's just like anything. When you're when you're around somebody, they don't always have to be patting you on the back and making you feel good. But if I know like, hey, I know this guy, I can push him right here. We can hit that button because he's going to respond to that. And so to go back to your point, like when you show up or when I go speak to your coach early and he's like, hey, man, this guy, no matter what happens, he keeps coming. He keeps showing up or, hey, he's been through this, this and this and this is how he handled it. Hey, that, that That's the stuff that fires you up. You're going, OK, when it gets hard, because it will. At some point, it's the hardest thing that any of these young guys have done, no matter how good their travel team was or their high school team was. When you come in and everybody was the best player on their team. And you're on a, in a program where you're, you're, you're trying to win at an elite level, you're, you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to get put in a place where you're not playing every day. Or when you don't play well, you get taken out of the lineup for somebody else. And for some of these guys, it's the first time that's ever happened to them. And so it's important that you're finding out what kind of guy you're getting so you're not finding out in the middle of their freshman year you know, or the middle of their sophomore year because they haven't really played a lot yet. Yeah, so you talk about that, right? You talked a little bit about being out in Arizona and, and talking to the you know the club coach, the travel ball coach, and uh, you know then obviously conversations with the high school coaches. You know, how do you handle it when you get conflicting information from those guys, right? Because one guy says, "Yeah, this dude's bringing it. He's a winner. He's a you know he's a champion," and the other guy may say, "You know what, Tony? I just don't know that this guy's a good fit for you." How do you how do you manage that? I mean, ultimately, it comes back to what you see in your gut, correct? Um, but when you get that sort of conflicting information, what sorts of things, you know, what's your process for vetting that information out and getting to the bottom of it? The, one of the first things I have to take into account is, is the relationship that I have with the person that I'm speaking to. 
So if this person knows me well, or I've dealt with them in the past, or maybe they know somebody that's coached me or coached with me or something like that, they can understand and speak to what it is that I actually do like to look for. While there's other guys, I think that maybe they're they're speaking to something because they do want to help their young men and they do want to help them move on, but maybe they don't have a full understanding of what Loyola Marymount baseball is or what even Division One baseball at that level is. And so I think it's hard sometimes to to do that. I think it's just important to keep in mind the relationship and the context that that you have with that person that you're speaking to, rather than just saying like, well, hey, you know, the high school coach he said he's he said he's kind of soft, and it's like, well, hey, man, that high school coach played for this coach. 30 years ago, that was an absolute salty grinder. And, you know, maybe, maybe the kids not, cause the kids today, like they're still tough. They're just tough in a different way than they were, you know, back then where you could coach them differently. And so our job is to, and for me, you, like I said, you hear me go back to like relationships and people. And I just think that's another piece of it is, do you know that person? Do they know you? And what kind of relationship do you have with them? And so then they can figure out, you know, what they're speaking to. So when I get conflicting, you know, types of ideas or thoughts on players i just have to, to remind myself like hey you know that's not great that that guy doesn't really like him like i'm going to keep that in mind and i'm going to ask this player about it you know and i'm going to go back to somebody else and say you know i may not specifically say who said it to me but i might go in a roundabout way and just say like hey what do you got on this like this guy said this you know or this was said about you like how would you respond to that and just listen to what they say about it because i think you know the, the more truth you can tell to people and the more transparent you can be in the recruiting process, the less mistakes you're going to make because they're going to know what they're getting into on their end of things. Yeah. And so obviously LMU is, you know, an elite academic institution here on the West coast. And, you know, how is, what's, what's kind of the challenge for you guys as it comes to, you know, balancing that 11.7, right? I mean, that, that magic number um, with, with everything that comes along with being an elite academic institution, you know, namely the cost of going to school there. Uh, I'm sure you guys have certain programs available for players uh, to offset some of that. So tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, about that scenario when it comes to, yeah, I'm an interested player. You're recruiting me. I'm interested in coming to LMU. Uh, you know, my family may not be uh, well off. Uh, you know, how can we make this work? Of course. And I think it's a very valid question. It's obviously the one that biggest, I think one of the only negative things about LMU, there's not a whole lot of them. I think one of the only negative things is that it is so expensive to go to school there. And so there, there are guys that can be scared away by the cost. And there's sometimes guys that academically, they're not a fit where you say, Hey, you know what? Your, your GPA is in the mid twos and you're, you're not going to be qualifying for any government aid either. And so this is going to just be a massive stretch for you. It's going to be asking your family to invest a lot of money in some things. Now you start getting to some of those academic markers that you can hit and you start qualifying for some merit money. And then the, the school takes some of the merit money. They take some financial needs. They package it all together. And we're able to generate some things that actually make it pretty affordable. And so I think, you know, that for me, that's always like one of the big things that come together is, you know, they're, there are certain types of people. There are certain types of kids that fit certain places. And for us, it's like, you don't have to be rich to go to LMU and you don't have to be dead broke to go there either to where you're getting the most money from the finance. The biggest key I think is going back to the kid. And if they academically struggle, you know, you can get just about anybody in school. If you really push hard enough, the problem is like, if you get these guys in school, they're going to get swallowed up and chewed up and spit out by the place. And that's not what you want either. Cause now you're going to not going to perform in the classroom or on the, on the baseball field. Yeah. And so I think 
I think from us is like looking at all those pieces, like they all matter. There's not one thing. And one of the things that scares me the most about this for this time right now, with some of these high school kids, like I've heard stories about high schools were like, Hey, you know, your grades can't go any lower, but you can raise them. Well, it's like, well, Hey, if I got a B and it's an 82% and I'm like, Hey, I'm not getting to a 90. Why the heck would I sit there and, and study for hours and hours? And it's like, well, you, you need to, because it's about developing the right habits and developing those small wins over and over. And if you can push yourself during this time, you're going to see you guys come out of it in a really good spot academically. And that's going to give them a better chance and their family a better chance. I don't care if you're at a, a state school or at LMU, it's going to give you a better chance to gain more money from, from that side. And so the challenge, the, the 11-7, to answer your question there, is a place like LMU, the 11-7 isn't so much the issue as it is like the number of spots. Like we're going to have to pay more money sometimes to a young man that we want to recruit because it can be financially expensive for them. And so we don't end up using all of our spots majority of the time. We end up using our money, you know, and so we'll run out of that 11-7 before we even use the spots as to where some of the other places I've been, you're going to run out of the spots and that becomes the issue because you can make school affordable for kids. And I think that's something you'll hear that's pretty consistent is like you listen to some different people speak. It's like, hey, their school can become very, very affordable through what's going on. But do they have the do they have the spots to hold you? And I think that they all go into effect. Like, hey, who's recruiting me? Who am I talking to? What's going on? Who else have they recruited? What does it look like? like what is their roster like? And who are the people that are recruiting me? And, and I think kids can find out whether or not it's a, a good fit and looking at some of that stuff. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you talked about the spots there. You know, recruiting's gotten younger and younger, right? I mean, we're seeing kids committing in eighth grade now to D, to D1 programs. And, you know, I, whatever your take is on that, you know, you can share that if you'd like or not. But, um, you know, you guys have had a lot of success here since you've been at LMU and, and bringing in some really quality guys. And, and not only that, but bringing in quality guys who are, you know, maybe going into their senior year or are currently seniors. Do you, and you, I mean, you've been around the SEC, you've been around the Pac-12, you're now, you know, at LMU and the WCC, you've been at the JC level. Do you think, uh, in your opinion, you know, how sustainable is that, right? I mean, how sustainable is it to start recruiting guys when they're in, you know, seventh and eighth grade? And, you know, whether they're being offered a scholarship or not, kids are committing to a school in eighth grade, ninth grade. Do you think that is a viable thing for the college game? You know, I think every scenario and situation is different. Now, I, it's it's hard to say that at some, some big schools, you know, you're recruiting a kid that may be a, a top-end draft pick where it's a no-miss type of situation, and you're saying, hey, this guy could pitch for us right now at 14 or 15 years old. You know, I'm not missing in terms of how he's going to develop over these next couple of years. I think, you know, but at the same time, I look at some of that stuff, and I think it's a huge stretch. I don't think that it makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, why LMU has had some success in the last, you know, year or so from the recruiting side of things is because the people before us did a really good job of bringing in some hot, some great players that established a good culture. The team before us did a really good job of winning last year, and that allowed us to get a really high-end player to come in this season. And I think for me, one of the hardest things to answer your, your recruiting young question in like a roundabout way, skirting the topic a little bit, is, you know, I think that I really do think that it's it's very hard right now, especially to predict what your roster is going to look like in two, three, four years down the road when now everybody's getting their years back and things are changing. It's ever evolving. And you're looking at some schools going, hey, you know, you're now going to have 
incoming high school guys that were draft players coming. You've got juniors coming back that were draft players coming. You've got seniors coming back that were going to be senior signs. And a year from now, you're going, hey, there's a chance we have, you know, high school, high school incoming guys, sophomores and juniors and seniors draft eligible. And so it's very hard for me to understand how you can recruit a, a very young guy. But hey, some guys have had a ton of success doing it. So I think, like I said, it's case by case and it's situation by situation. I think there are some premier spots you can look at and say, hey, we can recruit younger here and we've got to save spots. We've got to save money because as we get further along and we get a really good idea of what the landscape of our team is going to look like, I can go ahead and make those moves on some older guys because I think you know you're going to need arms. You know you're going to need a shortstop. You know you're going to need a center fielder. And so I think when guys are going younger on some of those type of positions, those premier spots, that makes a little bit of sense to me. But it's when they start collecting a lot of bodies and stuff like that, I start going, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, so you talked about that, the rostering piece. Do you think that is going to be – what do you think the short-term impact and, and potentially the long-term impact will be on that? No, I think we'll get it figured out. I think there's it's still – a a moving part in my mind. I think it's like this ever, ever evolving organism. There's still some things that aren't ironed out yet. And in my opinion, obviously I'm not in some of those, those meeting rooms like head coaches are. So I may not be the greatest person to ask on some of that stuff. I think right now, you know, it'll be interesting to see what kind of relief they provide next year. You know, the senior thing this year helps a lot where seniors don't count against your 11, seven and, and they don't count against your spots. And so that's going to help some, the question mark is going to come in next year. Now that we, we basically, now you've got two freshman classes on campus at the same time, you know? And so that's an interesting dynamic that's going to pop up here in a year or two, but I think there's still some things, you know, that could get ironed out in, in terms of the next couple of years and, you know, where they may provide relief or where they allow it. And, you know, if they don't, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of roster changes going on. Yeah, let, let's shift gears a little bit here, Tony, and let's talk about like data and technology and where LMU stands with that. What, what sort of data and tech are you guys uh, are you guys implementing and using in your player development, and and what what have, what have you seen be the results of that? We just got TrackMan right before season started, so it's very new to us. You know, we we have Blast that we started this fall. We have TrackMan that we started this spring, and a lot of that stuff is still really new to our guys. I think you know the big challenge is trying to figure out and learn and understand how to speak the language and how to how to convert it really into developing your players. And I think there's a, a fine line between saying, hey, you know, this data, this technology, like I got to teach to this, I got to understand this, and then there's the other side of the thing where you got to say, hey, you know what, we're still coaching baseball and we got to speak that language. And I think like going back with everything, every player is different. Every way they understand something can be a little bit different. And, you know, by getting some more information that, that adds another tool to your belt where you can say to a guy like, Hey, you know what? Maybe he's not grasping this concept when I'm talking about getting extended through the middle of the field. Maybe I got to talk to him a little bit more about some exit velocities and what we're trying to get to and, and that kind of stuff. And so I think, I think it's great. I think it helps out. I think it helps you understand. I think it, it gives you more knowledge, more understanding, and it's going to be fun to kind of, look at some things and, and see how they can help us. But I think at the end of the day, like there's that time to work on your swing and there's that time to hit, you know, and there's that time to work on pitching mechanics and there's that time to pitch. And so I think it's very important. You remember those two different things as you're developing your players. So you can say like, Hey, you know what? We got to try to figure out how to get this guy to throw more of a curveball because his slider is not getting enough swing and miss. And it doesn't really tunnel well with his fastball. But if you talk to a pitcher like that, a lot of times it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to an 18 year old kid. And so I think it's important to, to speak the language properly to each individual. Yeah, that, that's that's a really good answer. So I look at, where you know, some of your stops, Tony, and 
uh, you know, both as a player and as a coach. And I mean, just looking at some of the players that have been on those rosters and, you know, a lot of guys that you would kind of define as a leader, right? Like a lot of leaders on those teams. And, uh, you know, obviously as coaching staffs, you, you want to develop and cultivate leaders on your team. So what what do you guys do? What do you and Choder and the rest of your staff do uh, to do that, to, to kind of cultivate leaders within your program? Gosh, you know, this year, to be honest, we had we were so lucky with our seniors that came back and the role that they had played before that we just spend as much time getting to know them as people as we can. We had everybody bring a date and 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 everybody had to bring a date to our fundraiser this year, our poker night. And we ended up dancing and having a, a big dance party and, and things like that. <laughs> I, you know, it's kind of silly, but it's I think it's the more you get the guys to know each other on a human level, on a personal level. We did a barbecue at Choders and had to sing karaoke in front of the team and you know, I don't think for us, we don't, we didn't do at least this year, which done in the past at some other places, like any of the military things or anything like that. Um, you know, we dove into some of the, the Ken Revisa and the mental side, which isn't necessarily team building, but we did some different things in terms of just basic, you know, getting to hang out and getting to spend time with each other, eating pizza and watching games and having a barbecue and, and that type of thing. Because our whole deal was like, Hey, we got to figure out how to get to know these guys and we got to get to know them fast. You know, this wasn't your typical turnover where a staff gets, you know, maybe fired and they're bringing in somebody to overhaul the program. And you're just saying, hey, you know what, we're going to teach these guys the hard way how to learn stuff. You know, we had a, a team that was successful the year before under Coach Gill and Choder was a big part of that staff. And so our job as coaches this year was a little bit different in that transition of saying, hey, we got to get to know you. You got to get to know us and we got to do it fast. And so that was kind of our team building was more in the direction of, of getting to know each other as pe- as people, you know, hey, coming up this year, it may shift a little bit, right? We've got, we've got a big incoming class. We've got, you know, half the team will be returners again. And so it's going to be important that we mesh that pretty quick. And so you're going to see a lot more, you know, team interaction and team building exercises going on this year than we did in the past because we had so many returners. Yeah. You know, and obviously losing the season, you know, certainly affects that too. Right. So I mean, getting, you talk about getting another guy's, fast and, and then you lose the you know majority of the season but you know what's been what's been the biggest challenge for you uh, either personally or as a coach to you know to deal with with the cancellation of this spring season just seeing what the guys could become you know you, you i think that's been the hardest thing is just trying to figure out you know are the guys all right are they hanging in there are they mentally staying on it are they staying sharp are they taking care of their classes that's kind of where our focus shifted to during this time was hey really have an opportunity here to do a good job in the classroom and to get ahead, you know, where most majority of the time in the spring, you're staring down the barrel of having to pass classes and travel and play conference games and get back late at night on a bus ride and go to class all day Monday. And you're blown out when you're trying to study at night. And this was an awesome opportunity. And so far, you know, and talking to our guys, they've been doing a pretty good job of nailing that. You know, I think the other piece of that is the strength and conditioning that, that side of things like, this is one of the few times like you got a chance to really make some steps physically because there's nothing else beating you up, you know? And I think summer ball is going to show us some more here too. If they end up canceling all these leagues, like, Hey, we got to really do a good job of staying on a good throwing program, staying on a good strength and conditioning program and putting our guys in a good spot to come out of this physically better as well. So that's kind of where it shifted was making sure their guys are staying on top of the class and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, do you think this will lead to any changes in the college game in, in, in the immediate future or even long term? Uh, you know, I don't know. I think you're going to see it get better. You know, you're going to see, you know, 
college baseball is great, but you're going to see some some high draft picks show up to school now, which is going to be pretty fun. So I, I don't know how much it's going to kind of change that thing. I'm sure everything's changed. You'll probably see some regional games getting played and, you know, some regional scheduling. So, you know, I don't know how much RPI is going to come into to effect next year if they're going to have to take a look at that and say, hey, look, we can't expect teams to go across country and travel and all this other stuff. So, you know what, let's just see. You know, can we get as many baseball games in and who are the best teams? I, I don't know how that's going to look at the end of the thing, but I'm sure that might be a little different. It's kind of like what you guys already do on the West Coast, though, right? I mean, everybody yeah, plays yeah. everybody. Everybody yeah. plays everybody already. Yeah, so. you know, now I think the heart, yeah, now you're just looking at like, you know, like we were, we had Oklahoma coming in and some things like that where it's like we don't know if that's going to happen. Like if they don't have football, does things change? You know, so you got some some stuff like that where you're looking at like, hey, that could be a challenge going across the country now. But you're all right. Like majority of our stuff is pretty regional anyway. Yeah, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you the transition to LMU. I mean, obviously, Choder was on staff when you were at Irvine there, and as you mentioned, and, uh, you know, what was that like? I mean, how did that process come about? And, I mean, you know, an old coach calls you, and now he wants you to coach for him. It had to be a pretty special feeling for you, right? But take us through that process real quickly, if you don't mind. Oh, it was such a blessing. You know, Coach Moore had gotten the job up at St. Mary's, and he had given me such an unbelievable opportunity to be his recruiting coordinator and, and work with that staff. And um, it was a chance for me to keep my family at home and to be with Choder. Choder gave me an awesome awesome opportunity to be at a place that I really wanted to be with. And then to have him as the boss and the head coach just made it that much better. His role, you know, obviously people grow and change. I think if anything, that part kind of hurt it a little bit in terms of, Hey, you know, I'm a lot different as a player than, you know, as a coach that I was as a player 15 years later, he's a lot different as a coach, you know, when he first started in 07 to, you know, 2000. 2020 when he's a head coach now you're you're a totally different guy and i think that kind of is one of the things you're fighting is like hey i'm no longer a player for you i'm now your recruiting coordinator and i'm no longer the volunteer i'm now the head coach you know and so those are two things that that i think was if anything kind of going against us you know where i had to i had to prove to him a little bit like hey man i'm not a i'm not a 21 year old kid anymore either at the same time and, and i've been doing this for a little while and i've been around some people that have taught me some things and i'd like to help and and so i think that was a fun challenge but i couldn't be around a better person a more honest person that it gives me a chance to do my job and holds you accountable he, he's, he's awesome to be with yeah he's a phenom- phenomenal guy and I, that's why I, I wanted to hear that story because he is a great guy and, and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet that's for certain but Oh, and it took it took the people that that had coached like you know the coach Serrano's and the Greg Wallace's and Bill Mosiello guys that have been around us a lot growing up as people like they had to help with that and say hey you guys are both different <laughs> like you need to get to know each other now you know yeah that that's awesome uh, that's fantastic but Tony before I let you go we do a little uh, rapid fire here with the coaches uh, I'm gonna shoot off about ten questions for you first thing that comes to mind don't dwell on it too much but just kind of fire off the first thing that pops in your head so you ready to roll yes all right here we go small ball or gorilla ball complete baseball (laughs) country rock (laughs) or hip-hop country costco or sam's club sam's club uh track man or rapsodo track man college football or the nfl college football favorite vacation spot Maui, Mac or uh, PC? Maybe, maybe, oh, maybe oh. Parker, maybe Parker, Arizona. Though that's going to be a close, close, that's a close, tight one. Went oh. to Maui with the family here, so you know that was my first gut. Okay, uh, where was I? Mac or PC? Mac. 
best singer on the team? Me. <laughs> best dancer on the team, and you got to see this at the fundraiser. Mason Kokodinsky, not even close. <laughs> favorite. Got to see it. If you haven't seen it, you got to see it. Dude, you got to send us a video. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, favorite stadium you've ever been in? Oh goodness, I'm gonna say Dodger Stadium. Uh, Go to song to sing in the shower. <laughs> Three little birds. That a boy. Favorite sports team. Ooh, this is tough. This is tough. Wow. I'm, I've known as a big front runner on sports teams. I got to, I got to have winners. I'm going to go with, uh, gosh, dang it. You got me. I was rolling. (laughs) You were rolling. I'm going to go Packers. I'm going off, off kilter. I'm going Packers. Uh, All right. Uh, and lastly, Del Taco or Taco Bell? Del Taco. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Tony, man, can't thank you enough, dude, for spending some time with us and sharing some insights on to, you know, everything LMU and your path and just recruiting in general, man. I think it's been fantastic. So really, really appreciate you. Thank you for the time. I'm, I'm very grateful you have me on here. Awesome, man. Thanks a bunch. We'll talk to you real soon. All righty, Les. I'd like to thank LMU recruiting coordinator Tony Asaro for joining me on the podcast today. Be sure to check out prepbaseballreport.com for all your news and information. And until next time, we'll see you at the yard.